Chapter Four of the Story of the Pony Express by Glenn D. Bradley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Four: Operation, Equipment, and Business. On entering the service of the Central Overland California and Pikes Peak Express Company. Employees of the Pony Express were compelled to take an oath of fidelity, which ran as follows. I, so-and-so, do hereby swear, before the great and living God, that during my engagement, and while I am an employee of Russell, Majors, and Waddell, I will, under no circumstances, use profane language, that I will drink no intoxicating liquors, that I will not quarrel or fight with any other employee of the firm, and that in every respect I will conduct myself honestly, to be faithful to my duties, and so direct all my acts as to win the confidence of my employers. So help me God. Note. This was the same pledge which the original firm had required of its men. Both Russell, Majors, and Waddell, and the COC and PP Express Company, which they incorporated, adhered to a rigid observation of the Sabbath. They insisted on their men doing as little work as possible on that day, and had them desist from work whenever possible. And they stuck faithfully to these policies. Probably no concern ever won a higher and more deserved reputation for integrity in the fulfillment of its contracts and for business reliability than Russell, Majors, and Waddell. It is not to be supposed that all or any considerable number of the Pony Express men were saintly, nor that they all took their pledge too seriously. Judged by present-day standards, most of these fellows were rough and unconventional. Some of them were bad. Yet one thing is certain. In loyalty and blind devotion to duty, no group of employees will ever surpass the men who conducted the Pony Express. During the sixteen months of its existence, the riders of this wonderful enterprise, nobly assisted by the faithful station-keepers, traveled six hundred and fifty thousand miles, contending against the most desperate odds that a lonely wilderness and savage nature could offer, with the loss of only a single male. And that male happened to be of relatively small importance. Only one rider was ever killed outright while on duty. A few were mortally wounded, and occasionally their horses were disabled. Yet with the one exception, they stuck grimly to the saddle, or trudged manfully ahead without a horse, until the next station was reached. With these men, keeping the schedule came to be a sort of religion, a performance that must be accomplished, even though it forced them to play a desperate game, the stakes of which were life and death. Many station men and numbers of riders while off-duty were murdered by Indians. They were martyrs to the cause of patriotism and a newer and better civilization. Yet they were hirelings, working for good wages and performing their duties in a simple, matter-of-fact way. Their heroism was never a self-conscious trait. The riders were young men, seldom exceeding one hundred and twenty-five pounds in weight. Youthfulness, nerve, a wide experience on the frontier, 
and general adaptability were the chief requisites for the Pony Express business. Some of the greatest frontiersmen of the latter sixties and the seventies were trained in this service, either as pony riders or station men. The latter had even a more dangerous task, since in their isolated shacks they were often completely at the mercy of Indians. That only one rider was ever taken by the savages was due to the fact that the pony men rode magnificent horses, which invariably outclassed the Indian ponies in speed and endurance. The lone man captured while on duty was completely surrounded by a large number of savages on the Platte River in Nebraska. He was shot dead, and though his body was not found for several days, his pony, bridled and saddled, escaped safely with the mail which was duly forwarded to its destination. That far more riders were killed or injured while off-duty than when in the saddle was due solely to the wise precaution of the company in selecting such high-grade riding stock. And it took the best of horse-flesh to make the schedule. The riders dressed as they saw fit. The average costume consisted of a buckskin shirt, ordinary trousers tucked into high leather boots, and a slouch hat or cap. They always went armed. At first a Spencer carbine was carried strapped to the rider's back, besides a sheath knife at his side. In the saddle holsters he carried a pair of Colt's revolvers. After a time the carbines were left off and only sidearms taken along. The carrying of larger guns meant extra weight, and it was made a rule of the company that a rider should never fight unless compelled to do so. He was to depend wholly upon speed for safety. The record of the service fully justified this policy. While the horses were of the highest grade, they were of mixed breed and were purchased over a wide range of territory. Good results were obtained from blooded animals from the Missouri Valley, but considerable preference was shown for the western-bred Mustangs. These animals were about fourteen hands high and averaged less than nine hundred pounds in weight. A former blacksmith for the company, who was at one time located at Seneca, Kansas, recalls that one of these native ponies often had to be thrown and staked down with a rope tied to each foot before it could be shod. Then, before the smith could pair the hoofs and nail on the shoes, it was necessary for one man to sit astride the animal's head and another on its body while the beast continued to struggle and squeal. To shoe one of these animals often required a half day of strenuous work. As might be expected, the horse as well as rider traveled very light. The combined weight of the saddle, bridle, and saddlebags did not exceed thirteen pounds. The saddlebag used by the pony rider for carrying mail was called a mochila. It had openings in the center so it would fit snugly over the horn and tree of the saddle, and yet be removable without delay. The mochila had four pockets called cantinas in each of its corners, one in front and one behind each of the rider's legs. These cantinas held the mail. All were kept carefully locked, and three were opened en route only at military posts, Fort Kearney, Laramie, Bridger, Churchill, and at Salt Lake City.
The fourth pocket was for the local or way mail stations. Each local station keeper had a key and could open it when necessary. It held a time card on which a record of the arrival and departure at the various stations where it was opened was kept. Only one mochilla was used on a trip. It was transferred by the rider from one horse to another until the destination was reached. Letters were wrapped in oil silk to protect them from moisture, either from stormy weather, fording streams, or perspiring animals. While a mail of twenty pounds might be carried, the average weight did not exceed fifteen pounds. The postal charges were at first five dollars for each half-ounce letter, but this rate was afterward reduced by the post office department to one dollar for each half-ounce. At this figure it remained as long as the line was in business. In addition to this rate, a regulation government envelope costing ten cents had to be purchased. Patrons generally made use of a specially light tissue paper for their correspondence. The large newspapers of New York, Boston, Chicago, St. Louis, and San Francisco were among the best customers of the service. Some of the Eastern dailies even kept special correspondence at St. Joseph to receive and telegraph to the home office news from the West as soon as it arrived. On account of the enormous postage rates, these newspapers would print special editions of Civil War news on the thinnest of paper to avoid all possible mailing bulk. Mr. Frank A. Root of Topeka, Kansas, who was assistant postmaster and chief clerk in the post office at Atchison during the last two months of the line's existence, in 1861 says that during the period the express, which was running semi-weekly, brought about 350 letters each trip from California. Note, exact figures are not obtainable for the westbound mail, but it was probably not so heavy. At this time, September 1861, the telegraph had been extended from the Missouri to Fort Kearney, Nebraska, and letter pouches from the Pony Express were sent by overland stage from Kearney to Atchison. Messages of grave concern were wired as soon as this station was reached. Many of these communications were from government and state officials in California and Oregon, and addressed to the federal authorities at Washington, particularly to senators and representatives from these states, and to authorities of the War Department. A few were addressed to Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States. A large number of these letters were from business and professional men in Portland, San Francisco, Oakland, and Sacramento, and mailed to firms in the large cities of the East and Middle West. Not to mention the rendering of invaluable help to the government in retaining California at the beginning of the war, the Pony Express was of the greatest importance to the commercial interests of the West. The line was frequently used by the British government in forwarding its Asiatic correspondence to London. In 1860, a report of the activities of the English fleet off the coast of China was sent through from San Francisco eastward over this route. For the transmission of these dispatches, that government paid $135 Pony Express charges. Nor did the commercial houses of the Pacific Coast cities appeared to mind a little expense in forwarding their business letters. 
Mr. Root says there would often be twenty-five one-dollar pony stamps, and the same number of government stamps, a total in postage of twenty-seven dollars and fifty cents, on a single envelope. Not much frivolity passed through these mails. Pony Express riders received an average salary of from one hundred dollars to one hundred and twenty-five dollars a month. A few whose rides were particularly dangerous, or who had braved unusual dangers, received one hundred and fifty dollars. Station men and their assistants were paid from fifty to one hundred dollars monthly. Of the eighty riders usually in the service, half were always riding in either direction, east and west. The average run was seventy-five miles, the men going and coming over their respective divisions on each succeeding day. Yet there were many exceptions to this rule, as will be shown later. At the outset, although facilities for shorter relays had been provided, it was planned to run each horse twenty-five miles with an average of three horses to the rider. But it was soon found that a horse could rarely continue at a maximum speed for so great a distance. Consequently, it soon became the practice to change mounts every ten or twelve miles, or as nearly that as possible. The exact distance was governed largely by the nature of the country. While this shortening of the relay necessitated transferring the mochila many more times on each trip, it greatly facilitated the schedule, for it was at once seen that the average horse or pony in the express service could be crowded to the limit of its speed over the reduced distance. One of the station keeper's most important duties was to have a fresh horse saddled and bridled a half hour before the express was due. Only two minutes' time was allowed for changing mounts. The rider's approach was watched for with keen anxiety. By daylight he could generally be seen in a cloud of dust, if in the desert or prairie regions. If in the mountains, the clear air made it possible for the station men to detect his approach a long way off, provided there were no obstructions to hide the view. At night the rider would make his presence known by a few lusty whoops. Dashing up to the station, no time was wasted. The courier would already have loosed his mochila, which he tossed ahead for the keeper to adjust on the fresh horse before dismounting. A sudden reining up of his foam-covered steed, and all's well along the road, Hank, to the station boss, and he was again mounted and gone, usually fifteen seconds after his arrival. Nor was there any longer delay when a fresh rider took up the run. Situated at intervals of about two hundred miles were division points, in charge of locally important agents or superintendents. Note. These were executive divisions and not to be confused with the riders' divisions. The latter were merely the stations separating each man's run. Here were kept extra men, animals, and supplies as a precaution against the raids of Indians, desperados, or any emergency likely to arise. Division agents had considerable authority. Their pay was as good as that received by the best riders. They were men of a heroic and, even in some instances, desperate character, 
in spite of their oath of service. In certain localities much infested with horse thievery and violence, it was necessary to have in charge men of the fight-the-devil-with-fire type in order to keep the business in operation. Noted among this class of division agents, with headquarters at the Platte Crossing near Fort Kearney, was Jack Slade, who, though a good servant of the company, turned out to be one of the worst bad men in the history of the West. Note. Slade was afterward hanged by vigilantes in Virginia City, Montana. The authentic story of his life surpasses in romance and tragedy most of the pirate tales of fiction. He had a record of twenty-six killings to his credit, but he kept his division thoroughly purged of horse thieves and savage marauders, for he knew how to get his man whenever there was trouble. The schedule was at first fixed at ten days for eight months of the year and twelve days during the winter season. But this was soon lowered to eight and ten days, respectively. An average speed of ten miles an hour, including stops, had to be maintained on the summer schedule. In the winter the run was sustained at eight miles an hour. Deep snows made the latter performance the more difficult of the two. The best record made by the Pony Express was in getting President Lincoln's inaugural speech across the continent in March 1861. This address, outlining as it did the attitude of the new chief executive toward the pending conflict, was anticipated with the deepest anxiety by the people on the Pacific coast. Evidently inspired by the urgency of the situation, the company determined to surpass all performances. Horses were led out, in many cases, two or three miles from the stations, in order to meet the incoming riders and to secure the supreme limit of speed and endurance on this momentous trip. The document was carried through from St. Joseph to Sacramento, 1,966 miles, in just seven days and seventeen hours, an average speed of ten and six-tenths miles an hour and this by flesh and blood, pounding the dirt over the plains, mountains, and deserts. The best individual performance on this great run was by Pony Bob Haslam, who galloped the 120 miles from Smith's Creek to Fort Churchill in eight hours and ten minutes, an average of fourteen and seven-tenths miles per hour. On this record-breaking trip, the message was carried the 675 miles between St. Joseph and Denver in 69 hours, the last 10 miles of this leg of the journey being ridden in 31 minutes. Note. The dispatch was taken from the main line to the Colorado capital by special service. Denver, it will be remembered, was not on the regular pony route, which ran north of that city. There was then no telegraph in operation west of the Missouri River in Kansas or Nebraska. Today, but few overland express trains, hauled by giant locomotives over heavy steel rails on a rock-ballasted roadbed, average more than 30 miles per hour between the Missouri and the Pacific coast. The news of the election of Lincoln in November 1860 and President Buchanan's last message a month later were carried through in eight days. 
Late in the winter and early in the spring of 1861, just prior to the beginning of the war, many good records were made with urgent government dispatches. News of the firing upon Fort Sumter was taken through in eight days and fourteen hours. From then on, while the Pony Express service continued, the businessmen and public officials of California began giving prize money to the company to be awarded those riders who made the best time carrying war news. On one occasion they raised a purse of three hundred dollars for the star rider when a pouch containing a number of Chicago papers full of information from the South arrived at Sacramento a day ahead of schedule. That these splendid achievements could never have been attained without a wonderful degree of enthusiasm and loyalty on the part of the men scarcely needs asserting. The pony riders were highly respected by the stage and freight employees, in fact by all respectable men throughout the West. Nor were they honored merely for what they did. They were the sort of men who command respect. To assist a rider in any way was deemed a high honor. To do aught to retard him was the limit of wrongdoing, a woeful offense. On the first trip westbound, the rider between Folsom and Sacramento was thrown, receiving a broken leg. Shortly after the accident, a Wells Fargo stage happened along, and a special agent of that company, who chanced to be a passenger, seeing the predicament, volunteered to finish the run. This he did successfully, reaching Sacramento only ninety minutes late. Such instances are typical of the manly cooperation that made the Pony Express the true success that it was. Mark Twain, who made a trip across the continent in 1860, has left this glowing account of a pony and rider that he saw while traveling overland in a stagecoach. We had a consuming desire from the beginning to see a pony rider, but somehow or other all that passed us and all that met us managed to streak by in the night, and so we heard only a whiz and a hail, and the swift phantom of the desert was gone before we could get our heads out of the windows. But now we were expecting one along every moment, and would see him in broad daylight. Presently the driver exclaims, Here he comes! Every neck is stretched further, and every eye strained wider away across the endless dead level of the prairie, a black speck appears against the sky, and it is plain that it moves. Well, I should think so. In a second it becomes a horse and rider, rising and falling, rising and falling, sweeping toward us nearer and nearer, growing more and more distinct, more and more sharply defined, nearer and still nearer, and the flutter of hoofs comes faintly to the ear. Another instant, a whoop and a hurrah from our upper deck, a wave of the rider's hands, but no reply, and man and horse burst past our excited faces and go winging away like the belated fragment of a storm. So sudden is it all, and so like a flash of unreal fancy, that but for a flake of white foam left quivering and perishing on a mail sack after the vision had flashed by and disappeared, we might have doubted whether we had seen any actual horse and man at all, maybe. End of chapter 4
Recording by Roger Moline.